I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. And joining me today is author, attorney, J.W. Freeberg, Ph.D. He's a social psychologist, and he is an attorney as well. And his new book is Surrounded by Others and Yet So Alone, A Lawyer's Case Histories of Love, Loneliness, and Litigation. We're currently living in an interesting age where we are the most connected and yet the most disconnected than we've ever been. Exploring the impact of faulty connections and failing relationships, J.W. Freeberg uses his 30-year legal career and masterful storytelling ability to share five unique tales of chronic loneliness, one of modern society's most serious public health crises. According to his research, there are two pathways to loneliness, disconnection and misconnection. And using his case study format, he often, who he's often called the Oliver Sacks of law, an attorney, a social psychologist. He received his Ph.D. from UCLA, his J.D. from Harvard Law School, and is a member in good standing of the Bar of Massachusetts and of the Supreme Court of the United States. Welcome to the show. Uh, J.W., what does J.W. stand for? <laughs> Jay Walter, but everyone calls me Terry, which you're Terry, very welcome okay. To well, I'm glad I asked. I'm going to call you Terry, if that's okay. So just, uh, Terry, as we were talking about before the show, I mean, loneliness, loneliness, loneliness seems to be sort of the, the, the word of the day, having gone through a year and a half of isolation and quarantine during uh, the pandemic. But you started writing these books way before then. Loneliness. We we've become a more lonely society over the past, probably over the past century. You talk about it in terms of you know the his, his, the history of loneliness uh, as a society. So, um, I guess my first, maybe we should define what's the difference between loneliness and solitude. So solitude, as I use the term, and I, it is peaceful aloneness. Some people are able to be alone quite peacefully, quite in quite a mentally healthy way. Um, uh, God bless them. The rest of us, if we're really alone and isolated and disconnected from others, we get very painful signals um, from our body. And when I say pain, I really mean it. Which hurts more, I ask you, a broken arm or a broken heart? A broken heart. I, I think, yeah. <laughs> is it's that, we, yes, yeah. We're the kind of animal, uh, along with the uh, seagoing mammals, elephants, rhinoceri, some types of apes, who are meant to be together. We are built to be in a group, family-oriented, small pod group, like those other mammals. And it hurts when we're separated and alone. It really hurts. And that's why banishment, for example, was the big punishment in medieval Europe. If you were bad, they put you outside the town wall. Bye-bye. Good luck. You were on your own. And you didn't survive. Well, also, I think today, isn't shunning one of the things that some of the religious groups do? If you sort of get out of the the group and don't behave the way you're supposed to, you get shunned. That's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. So, okay, well, then let's get back to, lo- the, that's the difference between loneliness and solitude. But there are different, co- what, you talk about connections, misconnections, and how all that affects how we feel and how that affects our feelings of loneliness. Right, let me, let me, uh, let me 
uh, say one thing, and that is we're all lonely from time to time. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. How could we not be lonely when when we're in our, what, 30s or so, our grandparents die, when we're in our 50s or 60s, our parents die, we have friends who pass away or move away or work friends we don't see anymore if there's a change in occupation. Of course, we're lonely from time to time, but I'm talking about chronic loneliness. It's like the difference between sadness and clinical depression. Big difference. Chronically lonely people, people who literally have no one important in their lives, no one to call, no one who calls them. Before the pandemic in 2010, 35% of the American population self-identified as chronically lonely. No great surprise, 28% of the United States adult population now live in single-person households. 28% of us live all alone. So we are a lonely society far more than we ever have been in the past, In fact, the word loneliness was only created about 1800 in England. It wasn't even a word before then. People lived in communities, in in family groupings. All of our ancestors, wherever they came from around the globe, lived in communities, in small groups. They knew each other from birth to death. They're around their siblings and their cousins and their second cousins and their extended family throughout their lives. There was no space to get lonely in, if you will. But Terry, I want to interrupt you because I have to ask, you're talking about loneliness, but when I sort of hear isolation is, uh, you know, we are more isolated than we were. We don't live, like you say, we don't live in groups. We don't live in families. We don't even live in communities half the time. And so we're physically isolated. But then what about people who are, and that causes us, can cause us to be lonely, but what about people who have lots of friends, lots of, they have colleagues and friends and neighbors, and they're still lonely, chronically lonely, as you're describing it? That's a brilliant question. When I wrote a 2016 book called Four Seasons of Loneliness, I ignored that question, and after I published the book, I was just thinking about people who grew chronically lonely because they were disconnected. I realized that I'd left out about half of all lonely people, which you just described so well, they're all around other people. They're married. They have neighbors and colleagues and so on, but they feel subjectively just as lonely as those disconnected, isolated people because the relationships aren't working, just like you said. So let's talk about how those relationships aren't working and how they're detrimental to us and how and I think you mentioned this in in one of your books or one of your articles that I've read, but how we can be aware that we are lonely, that our relationships aren't working, that it's not working for us. And that's what's causing our loneliness. So awareness is, is that probably number one? We have to be aware that this is happening? Absolutely. Just like in alcoholism or anything else, you need to first be aware of a problem before you can think about how you might ameliorate the problem. Um, On my website, thelonelinessbooks.com, I've put two tests, the UCLA Loneliness Scale, and it's just a brilliant test. If you answer 20 questions, they're all there with how to score the answers and everything. You'll, You'll see how you're doing, whether your relationships are working or not, whether they're making you feel safe and nurtured and backed up and when trouble comes. If not, 
then you can recognize the problem and, and begin to work on it. And there's a second test there, that a relational therapy test, and you can look at each individual relationship and get a very objective view on how well it's working or not working. So that's one thing people can do to see whether or not they are soundly and, 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 and safely connected to those who nurture and soothe them. Well, let's say once we do that, we go on your website. I'm going to do it. I haven't done it yet. I mean, and find out how lonely. I, do, I mean, I definitely am not someone who feels lonely. I'm pretty good at if things aren't working well in relationships to be able to pivot, as the new word is. But um, I think one of the things, and I, I forgot which book of yours it is, but you talk about being able to um, – correct the, be able to, I don't know, pivot isn't exactly the word that you use, but you, if you feel lonely and you recognize it, you're able to then move on and make changes. Some people aren't able to do that even when they see it. Even when they take the test, they get into denial. Well, it's not quite really me. Um, so we have to be able to, to what? What do we do? Exactly. By the way, what we've learned in, in a sort of branch of psychiatry called relational therapy, how, how much better women are than men are at communicating with each other about how they feel and how, how, they're, how they're doing in life. Men are classically talking about, you know, whether the Red Sox or the Giants or whoever the local team is right. won the ball game the night before. Women are saying, how do you feel? How's your, how are you feeling? Last week you described to me your husband was rough on you or something. You feeling better now? Is he behaving better? They, so this field of psychiatry, which was created by women back in the 1970s, Jean Baker Miller and others, um, took from women their natural skill at at, at, at uh, meaningfully communicating with one another about deep feelings, um, a, a set of tricks about how to how to express yourself about deep problems and issues within you, so that you can work on the kind of issues we're talking about, and and that uh, some of that relational therapy is discussed also on the website in very readable language. I don't try to write anything so that it's just for professors. I want anybody to be able to read what I write. Well, you're such a great storyteller. These stories are wonderful. I mean, some are profoundly sad, um, but also it has to do with your writing. But I've also listened to one of the one of the, your books uh, on Audible, and it's great because you have a great person who does the voiceover, and it's very effective. That's I had wanted to tell you that. I was going to tell you that before the show, but I'm going to tell you now. So I would recommend also listening to your books on Audible. It, they're great. And you mentioned something earlier I wanted to respond to about, so how come people can be in and amongst others, their family, their colleagues, their neighbors, their teammates, and still feel so lonely. And that, I think, is something that is endemic to our modern society. And in the, in the um, a book I published last year called um, Surrounded by Others and Yet So Alone, I tried to get, get that across. The, I sort of found that my law cases fell into five groups. Some people don't, some people feel lonely even though they're surrounded by others because they're so busy. I, I told the story of a little boy whose 
parents were so busy, the father with his investment work, the mother was the mayor of a local town, and he felt like they weren't paying him the kind of um, deep love that he was waiting for. He phrased it much better than I can. He said, it's more or less a word-for-word quote from a 10-year-old. He said, I know my parents love me, but I can't feel their love. It's like the light that comes from a flashlight when the batteries are almost dead. It's just a glow. It doesn't help you look ahead. That's from a 10-year-old? Yes. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah, he was that a, is. He was a little boy in, in the cancer ward of Boston Children's Hospital. Oh. Um, and his he, his parents... You know, they showed up, they loved him, but they they didn't make him feel connected uh, and safe and nurtured because they were just too busy with their professions. There's another way you can be uh, with others and feel alone. Fraudulent connections. Sometimes people enter relationships fraudulently. Here's a great and frightening statistic. About 40% of current couples met online. And the dating, the information on the dating sites, other studies have shown, is about 50% inaccurate. People say they're the head of something when, in fact, they're not at all the president of it. They're a beginner at it, etc. No surprise. But that means relationships are starting with one person fraudulently representing who they are or what they believe in or what they've accomplished. Not a great way to start a relationship, you might, you might agree. Do you think some people do that purposefully, purposefully, like, say, on a dating site? Other people are just getting – I think people do it sometimes. You know, you're attracted to someone, you're with them, you're getting engaged, and sometimes you present yourself fraudulently, not on purpose. You just want to present a good picture of yourself, and you may exaggerate. And so you kind of get – couples get hooked into one another – not based on really the truth. Um, I think that happens too. I think you're exactly right. And I think that's sort of like building a house on a, on a shaky foundation. It's going to have trouble when a windstorm comes along. Yeah. Well, you, this kind of goes along with what you're saying, but you say, and I think you have said it, but I want to continue with this line of Loneliness makes, uh, you've written, loneliness, you mentioned this, is a creation of modern society. Um, all the, why is it a creation of, and what are we talking about in modern society? Are we talking about since the internet or um, what and Oh, I'd why? go back further. Yeah. I mean, I'd go back, I don't know, let's say a couple of hundred years, something like that. You know, at that point, all over the globe, our ancestors lived in communities, like we were mentioning earlier. They lived around their family, meaning their cousins, their second cousins, all their uncles and aunts and so on. These days, many people, um, I, have, I wasn't able to get a firm statistic, but I think it's about tw- in the mid-20% of American people live in a different state from the majority of their first cousins. So we, we're so mobile now that we're not around our biological family. So we, we make linkages at work, but we have a lot of mobility at work these days, too. You don't hold a job for life like you used to. 
So we've gone from communities, which are sort of gone, to multi-generational families. Well, those are pretty well gone. That's why we have to find child care for little ones and an adult care for seniors. Everybody used to be in a pod together, and the grandparents took care of their grandchildren. Well, we I have to tell you, during uh, during COVID, I had the experience no, is, I wanted of it. Yeah, of intergener. I'm just talking about. You mentioned intergenerational. You know, living together with the generations. Uh, and I had my son and daughter-in-law and set of twins, two-year-olds and a four-year-old. Their brother. We lived together at my house. And I'm not sure about that intergenerational. <laughs> we're sort of not set up for it anymore. I was but. not set. Neither were they. I love them dearly. Yeah. But you know what? I w- went back to my <laughs> more huh? uh, lonely surroundings. I'm half joking and, and I'm half not joking. But anyway, go on. No, I hear you loud and clear. <laughs> but uh, But that's what the world used to be. Uh, and then we went into the world of nuclear families, the sort of Ozzie and Harriet of 1950s television. And and that was um, had its pluses and its minus. And now I quoted you earlier the statistic that about 28% of the U.S. adult population uh, lives in single-family houses. So we've become more alone, literally. We live alone now to a far greater extent than we used to. And in a little village, you can't grow lonely. Everybody knows you. You know everybody. You're linked to people. Whether you're the hero or the anti-hero of the village, you're still you, part of the village. That's not true anymore. So we are more alone. So it's no great surprise that we fall prey to chronic loneliness. And you won't be surprised to hear what, what COVID has done to these statistics. It's, it's blown them out of proportion. You know, I've met one person, and I'm sort of trying uh, a couple authors that I had in, other authors that I had interviewed on the show, and one of them was a couple who they were both writers, uh, nonfiction writers, and she said to me, "Well, I found COVID. It was perfect for us because the two of us sat down and we did our writing, and we weren't interrupted, and we weren't forced to go to places we didn't want to go to or be with people that we didn't want to be with, and it gave us an opportunity to kind of." explore our relationship that was not the norm i know but i just want that was just an example yeah but that was an example that was very different than most people's experiences yes we have uh, we have uh, powerful studies now that have come in very recently um public health cdc uh uh, mental health substance use and suicidal ideation during covid19 have nearly tripled we really have problems with uh, with depression and anxiety disorders, for example. The statistics are showing um, a very, very significant increases in these uh, uh, personality disorders. So then what can we do about it as a society? Talk about being aware. We Now we have a problem that's exacerbated because of COVID. Uh, what do we do? I mean, that, I assume that involves... Counselors, teachers, lawyers, social workers, family, therapists, um, we have to recognize this and do something about it, are we, as a society? Well, I, th- I think you're right. I think we are in some ways. We see that um, with police issues now, how some of the things that we ask our police to confront would be better handled by uh, a team of police and mental health workers, for example. But there are things we can do, and that's great fun. Because each individual person can indeed police how they're doing, 
with those tests I mentioned earlier that you can find on the website. And there are things people can do. Look, we all watch our diet these days, uh, our alcohol intake, smoking, exercise. We know what we're supposed to do in these spheres to keep our bodies healthy. We all comply somewhat and somewhat not, I suppose, but at least we know where to head. There's, there are things, uh, steps to take inside of people's relational skill sets that will increase their closeness and the amount of nurturing they get from their friends and family. And we can talk about that if you like. Yeah. I also want to talk about, uh, about children and because going back to how we can start from the beginning and, and, and help our children so that they don't find themselves in a state of chronic loneliness. Do you think um, that some children are maybe born into, and I know there are studies that some children are born into families that they're just disconnected from in the beginning because of their temperament or their intellect or their interests. It's not necessarily that parents are doing the wrong thing, but they're just the wrong people for the wrong kid? Well, I think that's a, that's a fascinating question because we now understand much more about the neurobiology of connection, what it, why human beings connect and communicate and coordinate together, how that happens. We, we can follow the brain chemistry involved with, with these new brain imaging techniques that we have. So when you raise a child, um, when you think of all the hugging and kiss, when I ask people how many kisses and hugs they gave their child, they very often say, oh, a million. That's an expression, but it's basically true, right? Humans hold their children through age five or six, uh, and when they're little, they hold them all, you know, half the day, as you remember. Um, and all that hugging and kissing and nurturing and soothing and reassurance, uh, all of that training in language use and, and intersocial skills, we, we can trace the neurological effect of that inside the brain of the child. So we actually train our, as humans, we train our children to seek connection with others as obviously as birds train their young how to flap their wings and get ready to fly. I think that I wanted to give you this example because it reminded me of one of the stories that you had in your book, uh, The Loneliness. I forgot it was the character who ran over or his truck. Yeah. Yes. I don't want to give away yes. the story, but he ran, yeah, ran over a car and catastrophic things happened and how he was born into the wrong family. He was a working class family and education and reading and all of those kinds of things were not something that this family participated in, but he did and he became, he was so lonely because he was so bright and intellectual and he was a reader and he just never fit into his environment and which contributed yeah. to his loneliness and um, we only have a few minutes left, but I just, th- there was a story that uh, sort of kind of illustrates what we've been talking about. But I was in uh, California when my kids were young and my ex-husband was a sociologist doing training programs. And I was at a park with my two kids and there was another mother there with her two kids. And she was there because her son, her adopted son, these two kids were not adopted, was at a special school 
for exceptionally brilliant, brilliant children. And she told us the story. Her, her husband was an engineer, and she was a teacher. And this two-year-old child that they had adopted was always so frustrated and crying and screaming. And they really couldn't understand his frustration because they thought they were doing everything they could. One day, in the back of the yard, they had some kind of a pipe that was bringing water and stuff or whatever it was, you know, some kind of an engineering problem that they had dealt with. The kid, their son, Adam, ran back and asked his father, like, what is it? He started to explain to him in these terms that were like you would tell a two or three-year-old, and he got hysterical. And then finally, he realized he really wants the answer, and he gave him an engineering answer. And then that you would, and and his son just brightened up and his whole demeanor changed. And then they realized they had this, this genius who was so frustrated. Anyway, that story, as I was, it just reminded me of like really having to, this is a family who really tried. And then they finally realized that of course they had all the resources to be able to take this little boy to a special school. Anyway, that's, that was was one of the examples. Fascinating story. Yeah. That's a great story. But I interrupted you. <laughs> well, um, w- one of the things that uh, I think is fascinating is there's, there's a, in your frontal lobe, in each of our, in our, in our brains, in the frontal lobe of our brain, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a little set of, of cells that has a fancy name, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, and it only has two jobs. It records the first entry of, of signals of pain. So when you drop something heavy on your foot that's where it goes and then that tells then that sparks the brain to think about what you ought to do about it and that cortex has only one other job it it lights up in our brain imaging tests when we when people feel lonely when we run an experiment that excludes them unfairly from the others in the experimental group so our brain is set up to tell us when, when we're hurt, uh, you know, like you're getting burned, move your finger. It is also set up to tell us when you're feeling lonely, when you're feeling disconnected, because it's unsafe for humans and other mammals as well, by the way, to be uh, um, cut off from, from the pod that they're part of, that we are a social animal. So correcting Uh, Taking a look, an honest look at one's relationships, policing them, thinking about how to improve them is so important because that's the kind of animal we are. We need water, we need food, but we need safety and security about our relationships with those who nurture and keep us safe. No surprise, any of that. But I try in my story format to get that across. Well, you do. Absolutely. And that's what I, we only have a couple minutes left. So this book is surrounded by others and yet so alone, a lawyer's case stories of love, lo- loneliness and litigation. But this, this is part of a whole trilogy. So um, yeah, I recommend reading all of them. Um, and what about websites that we can go to for more information about you and about the books and, and right. the work you're doing? It, yeah. So, so I have a, a wonderful website, uh, well put together by a young guy who knows how to do that, um, and it's called thelonelinessbooks.com, thelonelinessbooks.com, and, and it's meant to be useful, um, and there's, um, 
dozens of these radio interviews if people have listening because you interviewers ask different questions. Yep. But more well, importantly, <laughs> the UCLA loneliness scale test is there and the relational therapy test. So people can really take a look at uh, in their own privacy at how their relationships are doing. And then there's an uh, article I've written that's right there about how you might think about if you find you've got problems, you're not talking to your siblings or your old best friend doesn't seem to call anymore. It gives you some ideas about things you can do to work on your relationships, just as we learn to work on our weight or our smoking habits or our exercise habits. Great. We can do something about it. That's great. And these are practical ways that we that we're able to do that. So go to the website, J.W. Freiberg. Terry, thanks so much for being on the show today. Great having you. My pleasure indeed. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 